the Bible, the book that has changed the world by changing lives around the world. Men and women, young and old, the Bible has changed my life. The love, stability, and hope that I need, they're all found in the Bible. The Bible gives me hope that a new day is coming. The Bible is helping me see what really matters. The Bible Live is a -a one-of-a-kind, first-time-in-history radio program. Offering you the chance to hear a 15 to 20 minute Bible reading each weeknight. The entire Bible, every year. Hear the scriptures, then call in with your comments and questions. This is the best show in the world. Well, actually, I was speaking against everything you were talking about before, and uh, now I, I stand humbly corrected. I'm a pastor, and our people really need to know the word more. The Bible also transformed the life of your Bible Live host. A full-blooded Apache Indian, born out of wedlock and abandoned at birth. Soapy Dollar was found in a big city alley by a kind-hearted fortune teller, then passed around to 16 families before he was six years old. Placed in a home for homeless and delinquent boys, Soapy Dollar heard the Bible's life-changing message at the age of eight, and the course of his life was changed. He's an American Indian guitar play it all around rodeo cowboy. I keep my thumb between the pages and my heart in the book. With more degrees than a thermometer and over 40 years of introducing folks just like you to the God of the Bible. Here is Sophie Duller. And we are indeed right here where we ought to be, and you there where you ought to be. We're ready for another evening in the Scriptures together, continuing right on through this remarkable book of Ezekiel by this remarkable man who faithfully preached the good news of that era, the true and living God who called to his people, even in the midst of being disciplined for their sin and their wickedness as a nation, Ezekiel preaching to the believers over in Babylon. You always have to remember now that he is in Babylon, and he is preaching to them in chapters 1 through 24 of Ezekiel, giving them visions of sin and of judgment and of punishment on them as a nation. God's warnings to the people of Israel go way back to the time of Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. God told them these warnings of disobedience. So finally, after many, many years of God's dealings with them, punishing and disciplining and bringing them back to faith, which has been almost a consistent downward spiral through the centuries, now it has come to God having to severely discipline the people. In essence, start over again with a small remnant who would truly seek their God. Ezekiel is preaching over in Babylon, while Jeremiah was over in Jerusalem preaching essentially the same messages of judgment, of warning, and calling for repentance. And then there's a section in chapters 25 through 32 where Ezekiel preached to the nations around Israel, the Edomites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and so on. God would deal with them as well. Finally, we're in the section now where Ezekiel begins preaching that God would restore them to the land. And we began that in chapter 33 a message of hope, of encouragement. And we just finished last program with this incredible sermon, this vision of a valley of dry bones. Right now, though, we're going to our Wisdom and Worship segment from the Psalm. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And now we are standing here inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city, knit together as a single unit. All the people of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. 
They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord as the law requires. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. End of reading, Psalm 122. The Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. This is the Bible Live. As tonight we enter into a section of the book of Ezekiel that emphasizes worship, the restoration of the people to the land in chapters 33 through 38, the restoration of the people of God, the people of Israel. Now remember, as we are reading the scriptures today, we are talking about God's people all around planet Earth, every man, woman, child whom God has redeemed. These are principles that we can apply to our own experiences now. Of course, we're reading in its historical context. On its first meeting, it is about Ezekiel's preaching to the people of his era, the people of that time. We are applying what we hear from God's dealings with them then to the people of God now around the world. The same principles apply as God dealt with them then. He deals with us as a people now. There have been messages of warning, messages of guidance and instruction, and now we're coming to a section where he talks about his protection. God's kingdom has enemies, both in the spiritual realm, and there are men and women and nations even that resist and oppose the growth and expansion of God's kingdom. In our reading tonight, God is promising us his protection against those enemies. And we begin a section about the restoration of worship, genuine worship of God. Ezekiel 38, 1 through 40, 49. Ezekiel 38. This is another message that came to me from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshech and Tubal. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your enemy. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws to lead you out to your destruction. I will mobilize your troops and cavalry and make you a vast and mighty horde, all fully armed. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its hordes will also join you, along with the armies of Beth Togarma from the distant north and many others. Get ready, be prepared. Keep all the armies around you mobilized and take command of them. A long time from now you will be called into action. In the distant future, you will swoop down on the land of Israel, which will be lying in peace after her recovery from war and after the return of her people from many lands. You and all your allies, a vast and awesome horde, will roll down on them like a storm and cover the land like a cloud. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. 
At that time, evil thoughts will come to your mind, and you will devise a wicked scheme. You will say Israel is an unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. I will march against her and destroy these people who live in such confidence. I will go to those once desolate cities that are again filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. I will capture vast amounts of plunder and take many slaves, for the people are rich with cattle now. And they think the whole world revolves around them. But Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish will ask, Who are you to rob them of silver and gold? Who are you to drive away their cattle and seize their goods and make them poor? Therefore, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. When my people are living in peace in their land, then you will rouse yourself. You will come from your homeland in the distant north with your vast cavalry and your mighty army, and you will cover the land like a cloud. This will happen in the distant future. I will bring you against my land as everyone watches, and my holiness will be displayed by what happens to you. Then all the nations will know that I am the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the one I was talking about long ago when I announced through Israel's prophets that in future days I would bring you against my people. But when Gog invades the land of Israel, says the Sovereign Lord, my fury will rise. For in my jealousy and blazing anger, I promise a mighty shaking in the land of Israel on that day. All living things, all the fish, birds, animals, and people will quake in terror at my presence. Mountains will be thrown down, cliffs will crumble, walls will fall to the earth. I will summon the sword against you throughout Israel, says the Sovereign Lord. Your men will turn against each other in mortal combat. I will punish you and your hordes with disease and bloodshed. I will send torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur. Thus will I show my greatness and holiness, and I will make myself known to all the nations of the world. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Ezekiel 39. Son of man, prophesy against Gog. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Gog, ruler of the nations of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you and drive you toward the mountains of Israel, bringing you from the distant north. I will knock your weapons from your hands and leave you helpless. You and all your vast hordes will die on the mountains. I will give you as food to the vultures and wild animals. You will fall in the open fields, for I have spoken, says the Sovereign Lord. And I will rain down fire on Magog and on all your allies who live safely on the coasts. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will make known my holy name among my people of Israel. I will not let it be desecrated any more. And the nations too will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That day of judgment will come, says the Sovereign Lord. Everything will happen just as I have declared it. Then the people in the towns of Israel will go out and pick up your small and large shields, bows and arrows, javelins and spears, and they will use them for fuel. There will be enough to last them seven years. They will need nothing else for their fires. They won't need to cut wood from the fields or forests, for these weapons will give them all they need. They will take plunder from those who planned to plunder them, says the Sovereign Lord. And I will make a vast graveyard for Gog and his hordes in the Valley of the Travelers, east of the Dead Sea. The path of those who travel there will be blocked by this burial ground, and they will change the name of the place to the Valley of Gog's hordes. 
It will take seven months for the people of Israel to cleanse the land by burying the bodies. Everyone in Israel will help, for it will be a glorious victory for Israel when I demonstrate my glory on that day, says the Sovereign Lord. At the end of the seven months, special crews will be appointed to search the land for any skeletons and to bury them, so the land will be made clean again. Whenever some bones are found, a marker will be set up beside them so the burial crews will see them and take them to be buried in the Valley of Gog's Hordes. There will be a town there named Hamona, which means Horde, and so the land will finally be cleansed. And now, son of man, call all the birds and wild animals, says the Sovereign Lord. Say to them, Gather together for my great sacrificial feast. Come from far and near to the mountains of Israel, and there eat the flesh and drink the blood. Eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and fat young bulls of Bashan. Gorge yourselves with flesh until you are glutted. Drink blood until you are drunk. This is the sacrificial feast I have prepared for you. Feast at my banquet table, feast on horses, riders, and valiant warriors, says the Sovereign Lord. Thus I will demonstrate my glory among the nations. Everyone will see the punishment I have inflicted on them and the power I have demonstrated. And from that time on, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. The nations will then know why Israel was sent away to exile. It was punishment for sin, for they acted in treachery against their God. Therefore, I turned my back on them and let their enemies destroy them. I turned my face away and punished them in proportion to the vileness of their sins. So now the Sovereign Lord says, I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on Israel, for I am jealous for my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and treachery against me after they come home to live in peace and safety in their own land. And then no one will bother them or make them afraid. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, my holiness will be displayed to the nations. Then my people will know that I am the Lord their God, responsible for sending them away to exile and responsible for bringing them home. I will leave none of my people behind, and I will never again turn my back on them, for I will pour out my spirit upon them, says the Sovereign Lord. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Ezekiel 40. On April 28, during the 25th year of our captivity, 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem, the Lord took hold of me. In a vision of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. From there, I could see what appeared to be a city across from me toward the south. As he brought me nearer, I saw a man whose face shone like bronze standing beside a gateway entrance. He was holding in his hand a measuring tape and a measuring rod. He said to me, Son of man, watch and listen. Pay close attention to everything I show you. You have been brought here so I can show you many things. Then you will return to the people of Israel and tell them everything you have seen. I could see a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The man took a measuring rod that was ten and a half feet long and measured the wall. And the wall was ten and a half feet thick and ten and a half feet high. Then he went over to the gateway that goes through the eastern wall. He climbed the steps and measured the threshold of the gateway. It was ten and a half feet deep. There were guard alcoves on each side built into the gateway passage. Each of these alcoves was ten and a half feet square, with a distance between them of eight and three-fourths feet along the passage wall. The gateway's inner threshold, which led to the foyer at the inner end of the gateway passage, was ten and a half feet deep. He also measured the foyer of the gateway and found it to be fourteen feet deep, with supporting columns three and a half feet thick. 
This foyer was at the inner end of the gateway structure, facing toward the temple. There were three guard alcoves on each side of the gateway passage. Each had the same measurements, and the dividing walls separating them were also identical. The man measured the gateway entrance, which was 17 and a half feet wide at the opening and 22 and three-fourths feet wide in the gateway passage. In front of each of the guard alcoves was a 21-inch curb. The alcoves themselves were 10 and a half feet square. Then he measured the entire width of the gateway, measuring the distance between the back walls of facing guard alcoves. This distance was 43 and three-fourths feet. He measured the dividing walls all along the inside of the gateway up to the gateway's foyer. This distance was 105 feet. The full length of the gateway passage was 87 and a half feet from one end to the other. There were recessed windows that narrowed inward through the walls of the guard alcoves and their dividing walls. There were also windows in the foyer structure. The surfaces of the dividing walls were decorated with carved palm trees. Then the man brought me through the gateway into the outer courtyard of the temple. A stone pavement ran along the walls of the courtyard, and thirty rooms were built against the walls, opening onto the pavement. This pavement flanked the gates and extended out from the walls into the courtyard the same distance as the gateway entrance. This was the lower pavement. Then the man measured across the temple's outer courtyard between the outer and inner gateways. The distance was 175 feet. There was a gateway on the north, just like the one on the east, and the man measured it. Here, too, there were three guard alcoves on each side, with dividing walls and a foyer. All the measurements matched those of the east gateway. The gateway passage was 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three-fourths feet wide between the back walls of facing guard alcoves. The windows, the foyer, and the palm tree decorations were identical to those in the east gateway. There were seven steps leading up to the gateway entrance, and the foyer was at the inner end of the gateway passage. Here on the north side, just as on the east, there was another gateway leading to the temple's inner courtyard directly opposite this outer gateway. The distance between the two gateways was 175 feet. Then the man took me around to the south gateway and measured its various parts, and he found they were exactly the same as in the others. It had windows along the walls, as the others did, and there was a foyer where the gateway passage opened into the outer courtyard. And like the others, the gateway passage was 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three-fourths feet wide between the back walls of facing guard alcoves. This gateway also had a stairway of seven steps leading up to it, and there were palm tree decorations along the dividing walls. And here again, directly opposite the outer gateway, was another gateway that led into the inner courtyard. The distance between the two gateways was 175 feet. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Then the man took me to the south gateway leading into the inner courtyard. He measured it and found that it had the same measurements as the other gateways. Its guard alcoves, dividing walls, and foyer were the same size as those in the others. It also had windows along its walls and in the foyer structure. And like the others, the gateway passage was 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three-fourths feet wide. The foyers of the gateways leading into the inner courtyard were eight and three-fourths feet deep and forty-three and three-fourths feet wide. The foyer of the south gateway faced into the outer courtyard. It had palm tree decorations on its columns, and there were eight steps leading to its entrance. Then he took me to the east gateway leading to the inner courtyard. He measured it and found that it had the same measurements as the other gateways. Its guard alcoves, dividing walls, and foyer were the same size as those of the others. And there were windows along the walls and in the foyer structure. 
the gateway passage measured 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three-fourths feet wide. Its foyer faced into the outer courtyard. It had palm decorations on its columns, and there were eight steps leading to its entrance. Then he took me around to the north gateway leading to the inner courtyard. He measured it and found that it had the same measurements as the other gateways. The guard alcoves, dividing walls, and foyer of this gateway had the same measurements as in the others and the same window arrangements. The gateway passage measured 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three-fourths feet wide. Its foyer faced into the outer courtyard, and it had palm tree decorations on the columns. There were eight steps leading to its entrance. A door led from the foyer of the inner gateway on the north side into a side room where the meat for the sacrifices was washed before being taken to the altar. On each side of this foyer were two tables where the sacrificial animals were slaughtered for the burnt offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Outside the foyer, on each side of the stairs going up to the north entrance, there were two more tables. So there were eight tables in all, four inside and four outside, where the sacrifices were cut up and prepared. There were also four tables of hewn stone for preparation of the burnt offerings, each 31 and a half inches square and 21 inches high. On these tables were placed the butchering knives and other implements and the sacrificial animals. There were hooks, each three inches long, fastened to the foyer walls and set on the tables where the sacrificial meat was to be laid. Inside the inner courtyard, there were two one-room buildings for the singers, one beside the north gateway facing south and the other beside the south gateway facing north. And the man said to me, The building beside the north inner gate is for the priests who supervise the temple maintenance. The building beside the south inner gate is for the priests in charge of the altar, the descendants of Zadok. For they alone of all the Levites may approach the Lord to minister to him. Then the man measured the inner courtyard and found it to be 175 feet square. The altar stood there in the courtyard in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the foyer of the temple. He measured its supporting columns and found them to be 8 and 3 fourths feet square. The entrance was 24 and a half feet wide with walls 5 and a quarter feet thick. The depth of the foyer was 35 feet and the width was 19 and a fourth feet. There were 10 steps leading up to it with a column on each side. End of reading Ezekiel 38 1 through 40 49. You are all I need when I'm surrounded. You are all I need if I'm by myself. Indeed, the message of the evening as we look at this reading from the book of Ezekiel, it begins with the temple, the centrality of worship. We read that sad, sad chapter in the book of Ezekiel when God's glory goes out of the temple. And now the glory of God will return. God will come to restore his presence among his people. In this vision that Ezekiel has, he'll go on to talk about the land itself, the entire region of Israel, again, restored. But the message for us now, as we talk about tonight's reading, there are two sections. One is God's promise of protection for his people. It's really more of a warning to the enemies of God. Those who would oppose him, his people, those who would oppose the kingdom of God. That is the redemptive plan of God to call out a people for himself from all around planet Earth. Gog in particular that is mentioned is presently central Turkey. Also includes the lands of Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya. 
and possibly modern Russia. Now, it could be a person involved. There's a king, Gyges, who was a king of Lydia back in 660 B.C., but we could also apply this to all of those who oppose the kingdom of God. They will be destroyed. Look at chapter 38, verse 7. When we first started reading about Gog and Magog and how God would destroy his enemies, he says that he would call them into action. So the enemies of God, those who would resist him, are not outside of God's plan. They are figured into God's understanding of what would happen. He planted man with free will on the planet Earth where good and evil coexist. All possibilities have been thought of. Think of all the biblical leaders who tried to resist God and his plans and how God used them ultimately to further his plans. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Great. These were not godly men who tried to fit into God's plan. They were unbelievers. And yet God used them mightily to further his own redemptive plan. You could speak of the leaders of our day, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, even Hitler, terrible leaders, but in some way they are called and used of God to bring about judgment, to bring about discipline, and to further the purposes of God. The number one plan of God for humanity is to call out men and women, boys and girls from all over planet Earth, a people for himself, to be with him forever. I will be their God, they will be my people. Now, this battle that is spoken of in chapter 38 and 39, some say it's the end of time battle, in some ways like the battle in Revelation chapter 20, but there are important differences as well. The clear lesson that we can take from this is to tell the people, to reassure them, to give them confidence and comfort that God will deliver his people, that no enemy can stand against him ultimately. As we go on now into chapter 40, we see this restoration. The first part begins with the restoration of worship, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of God's sensed presence among his people. Remember now, Ezekiel is a priest. He's familiar with the temple as it had been destroyed. Some say this was the blueprint that Zerubbabel should have built. Some say that it's the literal temple for millennial reign of Messiah, although that would raise the question of why there would be sacrifices since Jesus the Messiah has completed all the sacrifices once and for all time. Many say, though, that it is symbolic of the true worship of God, both for the church now and for the future. No doubt about it, though, our passages tonight both deal with genuine, true worship of the living God. What does it mean to worship God? I had that question come up to me this uh, weekend as I was speaking to a large group of young men and women, talking to them about the Christian life, the life lived in God's presence. What does it mean to worship? Remember, Jesus in the New Testament told the woman at the well, there'll come a time when we will worship him in truth and in spirit. It has not so much to do with buildings and rituals and so on, but with our heart is the idea. And that's what we want to learn from these passages. What does it mean for you and me to truly worship God with our lives, with our lips, during the times that God gives us? Let's come back to The Bible Live next time. See you then. The Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. Sophie reads from the New Living Translation by Tyndale House Publishers. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping promote spiritual revival across America, and your financial support is needed. Please mail your tax-deductible gift to The Bible Live, Post Office Box 18888. That's The Bible Live, P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas, 78218. You may also make credit card donations at the ministry website, thebiblelive.com. Now don't forget, 
Join us each weekday for The Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. Start today, and in one year's time, we will read and respond together to the entire Bible. Let the most important word you hear each day be God's Word. 